Welcome to the CropCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, uh, my name is our father, Emmanuel Katongoy. I'm a professor here at Notre Dame, professor of peace studies and theology the University of Notre Dame and the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. I'm also the founder of Bethany Land Institute, a nonprofit organization in Uganda, working with the rural communities and rural youth in a program of integrated agricultural education, which is focused on sustainable land use, economic entrepreneurship, and spiritual formation. I'm delighted to be joined today for a conversation with a recent Notre Dame graduate, Elsa Baron. Elsa graduated in May 2021 with a biology major, with a supplementary major in peace studies and a minor in sustainability. During her time here at Notre Dame, she was the recipient of the Yarrow Award in Peace Studies, an award that is given annually to an undergraduate student who demonstrates academic excellence and commitment to service in peace and justice. Since her graduation, Elsa has been uh, writing frequently on environmental peace building, and she has launched her own podcast, Olive Shirt. She has also returned from attending COP26 in Glasgow with other young climate activists from around the world. Elsa, it's a joy to have you. Thank and if you, you could begin, Elsa, by telling me a little bit more about yourself, and what was the first got you interested in this concept of environmental peace building and what the phrase means to you? Well, thanks for that introduction, Father Emmanuel. And I think you did a good job of telling about me. I'll just add that right now, kind of in the interim between graduation and a Fulbright grant that's been delayed because of covid very understandably so. I've been doing community organizing with an interfaith environmental organization called Hoosier Interfaith Power and Light. So that's been a big part of my recent work. And part of what I conceptualize as environmental peace building, but I guess the journey to explore this concept and this field really began back in sophomore year when I was at Notre Dame and I took a class with Dr. Patrick Reagan, who is also a professor or a former professor in the Kroc Institute called Climate Change and Armed Conflict. And that really just piqued my interest in the fact that issues of, of science and ecology and climate could actually be really connected to peace studies. I think when I told people that I was double majoring in biology and peace studies, the reaction was usually like, whoa, those are are two really different things. How do you decide to pursue both of them or how do you connect them together? And so this class was really a reminder that they are connected and a challenge to me to continue to explore the ways in which they are connected. So since then, I've kind of moved from a narrow view of, you know, climate can affect armed conflict to the ways that climate really affects everything about our society. And I think that that's an amazing and terrifying reality. And I'll explain that a little bit more because it's amazing in that 
it's very intersectional. So when you work on environmental and climate issues, that means you also work on issues of environmental justice and the um, way in which the environmental degradation affects communities differently. It means you work on gender equality and you work on creating diverse coalitions of people or whatnot. Like there's so many diverse ways to work on this and to integrate peace building. But it also means that climate risks and climate impacts and environmental impacts have this like multifaceted effect on so many systems and so many people around the world. And that is what makes it terrifying, but also urgent to work at this intersection. And so if I were to put together a definition, which I have to admit is very disputed, I mean, maybe not disputed, that might be a negative term, but it's under discussion as we speak among many practitioners and academics in this field. But what I would say is that environmental peace building is an acknowledgement of and response to all of the ways that climate and environmental issues intersect with both violence in its direct and structural forms and opportunities to build peace and justice in the world. And that's why I'm so excited to keep exploring issues in this area. So what I'm hearing you uh, saying, Ursa, that really in our time, you cannot really think about peace building without thinking about ecology and environment is so at the heart of any attempt to think about, bring about peace in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's an existential threat in so many ways and has impacts from the like, you know, global level all the way down to local communities. You see in South Bend, there's been increased rainfall and increased flooding. And that's impacted the community in a very localized way and impacted those in the South Bend community who have particularly vulnerable infrastructure. And so you, you can already start to see the ways that it transverses the local to global so quickly and, and does impact peace and justice in a tangible way. And I know that for you, Father Emmanuel, you have experience experiences with climate and environmental degradation kind of across the globe in Uganda. And I had the chance to visit Bethany Land Institute in Uganda when I was a student just before the world locked down for the pandemic. And it was an incredible experience to be there and to witness the work that you're doing. And it was a big source of hope for me in the midst of all the uncertainty in 2020 to just kind of be grounded in a place that has been so significant for you and that you have created as well. So I wonder if you could talk a bit more about climate and its impacts in Uganda and also your journey in founding Bethany Land Institute, which in many ways is a response to the climate and ecological crisis. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. I can trace my journey to around 2004 when I was invited to lead and found a Center for Reconciliation, Duke University, before I came here. And the vision that merged and uh, shaped the work of that center was the vision of God reconciling all things, everything, mm-hmm. the whole of creation, not just human beings, but everything, being really invited and drawn into the drama of God's reconciling love. And that means shalom, that means peace, that means food, 
Uh, that means uh, good relationships, everything. Increasingly, however, as I traveled back and forth between the U.S. and Uganda and my native village where I grew up, I could see the devastation that was caused by ecological degradation. The forests around which I'd grown and been cut, the land had become more arid. There was acute food shortage in the community and more and more young people had migrated from the rural community into the city ending up in slums. So the slums were growing at a terrific rate. Where are the conditions of living there? As one author described, conditions of kind of a hellish existence, come out like hell on earth in those kind of slums. So I started having really uh, serious questions about this notion of God reconciling all things, about peace, about shalom. What does that mean in terms of communities? like the one that I knew in Uganda, of the young people who had no job, the village communities that were experiencing food shortage, experiencing climate change, the change in seasons that had no employment. So it's around these issues of ecological degradation, issues of poverty, unemployment, food insecurity, that I started talking to some friends of mine and what I really wanted to do was to get some land and plant at least 10 acres of land with a forest to replace the forest I grew up around. And the conversation, one thing led to another. What I like about the journey is the sense of how one thing led to another. So as we started talking with Tony and Cornelius, they started talking about the challenges of education, the challenges of economics. So we decided, that, well, let's try to do something, an initiative to address the challenges of poverty, unemployment, ecological degradation, and food insecurity in the community, that we are seeing more and more that they are all connected. They're all connected to one another and that we are giving rise also to a number of conflicts as well. So that's how we started. But then, uh, fortunate enough for us, in 2015, Pope Francis published this incredible letter, Laudato Si, and as I read Laudato Si, what the Pope was saying there, that underlying the ecological crisis of our time was a spiritual crisis. Question of the lack of belonging, that we have forgotten what it means to belong to the earth, to be deeply connected to the earth. And because we have forgotten that, we are estranged, not only from the earth, but also from one another, from ourselves, and ultimately, from God. And so he was making that kind of connection. I said, wow, this is rich. This is, this is fresh. He was able to trace the ecological crisis to a spiritual crisis. Pope Francis in Laudato Si calls for this integrated approach that brings together the care for creation, the restoration of human dignity, the fighting of poverty. So the kind of integrated approach I really dwelt so much on that kind of integrated approach, the integral ecology. But he was also saying that a response cannot be reduced to just one action after another or one policy after another, important as these were. There needs to be, he says in paragraph 111, there needs to be a distinctive way of looking at things, a mindset change, a lifestyle a spirituality and an education program. 
way. We read that and I said, well, this is exactly what we need to be, an education program that nurtures that mindset change, that different way of looking at things and spirituality and lifestyle. So that's how we started, by really us trying to enact Laudato see that integrated approach, and we called young people from the rural communities together. We started working on the land and started education program, sharing visions from Laudato Sea, learning from them, learning from African native ways of thinking and connecting with the earth, and really developing uh, a curriculum that brings together spiritual formation, hands-on approach, and that also integrates kind of leadership uh, training for the young people. So that's what we really are doing at, at BLI. But that's the journey that kind of led to the formation of Bethany Land Institute as an education program that trains young people for the transformation of rural communities. I love that you can just pull the Laudato Si citation out of your brain in paragraph 111. I have so much lived around Laudato Si because (laughs) I think it's one of the most profound texts. And I'm glad that it's being read not only uh, by Catholics or Christians, but by different people, because I think it has profound insights for the future of our common home. So in my research, in my work with the BLI, I've come back to Laudato Si over and over again. It's a foundation text for the curriculum at BLI. We teach out of it. And all the caretakers, in a way, take time to discuss it. And every time that I read Laudato Si, I'm discovering new insights that kind of bring us to that deep connection with the earth, with one another, with the community, and with God. And I always, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to read Laudato Si many times at Notre Dame, actually. I think I was assigned to read it maybe five times, which is something that always surprises people when I tell them. And I recommend it to all sorts of people, especially working with interfaith communities, just how relevant it is not only to people of the Catholic faith, but people of faith, all different kinds of faiths and all over the world. And another thing that really surprises people when I tell them about Notre Dame is the opportunity to experience different parts of the world in a hands-on way. And that was something I got to do as a part of your class to actually travel to Uganda, to be at Bethany Land Institute, and learn not only from you as the professor of the course, but also so many others who are a part of the work that you're doing and that's always comes as a surprise and and people are so excited to hear that those opportunities were available and i wonder i know you really fought for that opportunity as well why was it so important for you to make the direct connection between students and your organization and not just to learn about it but to actually come and see and experience and relate to what's going on at Bethany Land Institute I guess part of it is the journey that I have been on as a scholar myself, interested in issues of peace, definitely, and realizing that peace, as uh, one scholar, uh, one poet, Denise Levitov says, is not there ahead of its making. It's like a poem. It is in the very practice that the poem comes to be. 
peace is like that. It's not does not exist ahead of time, and then we come we have a vision of it, and then we go and implement. It is in the very praxis actually that not only we understand what peace is, that we actually accomplish, if at all we are able to accomplish any dimensions of peace. What this means that praxis is integral not only to the very understanding of what peace is, but also to the very realization of peace in very concrete uh, places. And uh, whether you're talking about peace broadly or integral human development or integral ecology, that all these notions, they're not so much as blueprints that exist independently out there, but they are invitations into a certain kind of praxis, into a certain kind of modes of living and in, in, engaging. So engagement is really part of it. And so my own journey kind of leading increasingly to me seeing myself as a scholar practitioner and therefore inviting my students not only to come and see, but for us to learn together in the very process of doing, whether it's doing ecology, integral human development, or peace. So really that kind of engagement for me is very crucial if we have to learn what it means, if we have to understand, first of all, and also what we, we have to learn, what it means to contribute or to be part of that movement of peace. So that is one direction that really me to, to see more and more. Oh yeah, we need to engage the students, not just in classroom, but in the very places where something like uh, the doing of integral ecology, of integral human uh, development, the doing of something like peace is taking place and then learning from there. But there is another angle that actually led me to this. Through the journey of reconciliation, the journey of peace, realizing the significance of place, the significance of locating oneself in a place and going deep in a place. And people also like Wendell Berry and others are calling us to pay attention to place. That's where we go deep. That is where also we learn affection. And that's where, in a way, a notion of peace or reconciliation might look like. One of my favorite authors, somebody whom you know, is Norman Wisber. So he wrote this beautiful book, Making Peace with the Land. And somewhere on page 66, he says something to the effect. And I, and I like it when I think about reconciliation, when I think about peace. He said, for example, Rather than being simply the absence of violence, reconciliation, and you can change reconciliation with peace, reconciliation takes us to a physical place, a plot of land that puts down roots, produces food, provides stability and hospitality, fosters healthy relationships, and inspires joy. Shalom presupposes people living securely in the land, which means that land and people together are being respected and nurtured. So when we talk about an integrated approach in integral ecology, it's kind of like really inviting us to place. And so that's for me what I found also exciting to invite students to place and kind of begin to understand not only the dynamics that shape a place, but also the dynamics that shape are the praxis of peace or integral ecology. Definitely. I love that vision. And I think the connection to place 
is something that I really had to ponder right after this trip to Uganda when we were kind of grounded in our home communities and, you know, not just in our home communities, but in our homes and thinking about places in an entirely new way through the daily walks that were became kind of the the highlight of the day and the compost pile in my backyard that became kind of a one of the most inspiring hope giving projects of the pandemic was just being able to see something that was you know our waste our disposal be transformed into something that could be life giving in my own backyard and meanwhile watching the seasons change and the leaves you know grow onto the trees and then full summer bloom and then fall off of the trees and we're still in a pandemic you know through all of these seasons still in the same place but reconnecting with that place and finding grounding in the small little things and being attentive and listening to the environment and to the land. Those were all things that I experienced in an entirely new way. What you're describing to me also sounds like from a theologically trained, sounds like a spirituality. So, yeah. so do you find that this kind of engagement is actually deeply connected with spirituality? Or if you can say a little more, how you connect spirituality in this broad understanding of connectedness, of attentiveness, of listening, of belonging. How do you connect spirituality to the work that you're doing in environmental peace building? I mean, back to the compost bin, which is tends to always be my example for things now, but just the incredible diversity and harmony of an ecosystem of species in you know even a teaspoon of healthy soil and the way that those communities work together to bring new life out of what has passed or what has died and and gone is for me an incredibly spiritual thing to witness and i don't know if i necessarily have the answers to many of the questions that that process raises for me about the cycles of life and about rebirth and about death from a theological and, and spiritual perspective. But the questions that it brings to my mind and the reflections that it gives me is where I really ground myself spiritually and, and find ways to think innovatively and differently about the world and about peace as well. In terms of climate, and climate change, if you we zoom out from you know a teaspoon of soil to our entire global climate system and the way that our decisions impact people on the other side of the world, my decision to continue to eat meat on some occasions and the, the impact that that has on others who are facing rising sea level and intensifying natural disasters and all of the impacts that then line up because of increased carbon emissions and whatnot. That drives me back to faith because of our call to care for creation, first of all, and also to care for our neighbors. And I think the climate crisis is a real failure to honor both of those callings and a real failure of imagination to see how interconnected we are and 
we have this kind of fantasy, I think, especially in the United States. We have a fantasy that we can have as much as we want and do whatever we want. It won't matter. It won't impact others. The world is here for us so we can do what we want with it. And I think faith calls me to challenge that assumption and to say, no, what I do is is part of a larger system. It's part of a system where the environment and the people who inhabit it have an inherent dignity that is worth protecting and it is our responsibility to protect. And so that's why I and others that I work with are so passionate about the issue of climate change. And then something that I really learned from you as well, Father Emmanuel, and from Laudato Si, is that the climate crisis is not just a technological crisis, even though, of course, there are incredible technological solutions that can help us at its root. It's a spiritual crisis. It's a crisis of our culture and our systems. And like I said, that fantasy that tells us we can have whatever we want whenever and and that's okay. And at the root of it is spiritual crisis of greed and of extractive ideologies and dishonoring and devaluing the dignity in others and in the world around us. And viewing it from that perspective is, it becomes a bigger problem at its root, but it also becomes one that brings everything into better light, makes everything kind of work sense together or make sense together, work together. And then also really illuminates where the real work is, which is digging in and changing systems and structures and and our hearts as well, not just making these tweaks on the very branches of the crisis, but actually digging down to the roots. And so that's kind of why I think the the issues of faith and environmental and, and climate issues really do go together in a very, very important way. You're right. Something bigger, something deep that is going on there. And uh, when Pope Francis talks about the ecological crisis as a spiritual crisis, he's also saying, talking about that sense of belonging, about these bigger questions. Who am I? Where do I belong? Who am I connected to? What's the purpose of life? These, these bigger, broader questions that really embed us, if you like, in a number of relationships. In paragraph 66, he said that each human life is embedded in three interrelated uh, relationships. One relationship with the earth, relationship with the others, community, and relationship with God. Three interconnected relationships with God, with one another, and with the earth. But if any of these relationships is ruptured, the rest suffer. Then we get into a kind of crisis. I think this is what he's describing as the environmental crisis that is grounded within these relationship metaphysical questions of belonging, or where do I fit within uh, this big picture, a uh, sense of identity, that once that is lost, then our spiritual deserts kind of lead to this kind of restlessness that transits into excessive consumerism, uh, into violence. And that's why he's making the argument also that unless there is something like a conversion 
an ecological conversion, a spiritual conversion, or technological approaches to solving the ecological crisis will just kind of deepen the crisis. So when people hear that, oh, he's calling for a conversion, they said, oh, okay, of course, he's a pop, he's, he's preaching now, he wants people to become Catholic. Or... That's not what he's at heart here about calling it a conversion. He's calling us to recover a deep sense of belonging and deep sense of interconnectedness with the earth, with one another, and with God. And that kind of translates into these kind of simple everyday practices like what you're talking about around uh, the compost pit near your home, that we discover what it describes, a kind of a sense of serenity. So talk about peace and peace building, that's right there. So I think I really like and appreciate the sense of calling us to attend to that kind of spiritual connection in the search for integral ecology, in the search for peace, that unless we are able to reconnect to those deep deep senses of belonging, our efforts will fall short of of real deep integral human development. But I want to shift a a bit here, Elsa, to talk about COP26, where you were. Hold on, right before you shift, I think that there's a really interesting example that kind of highlights what you were saying that connects this to peace and violence issues around the world. Because I've been doing some research recently on the way that increased global demand for critical mineral and metal resources in order to source solar panels and batteries for electric vehicles and and other renewable energy systems, which don't get me wrong, I do a lot of advocacy for solar and, and renewable energy. So I'm not against those things, but just in the reality that those technological fixes are not perfect solutions and do have impacts on peace around the world. And in communities in Peru, where a lot of those minerals and um, metals are sourced, there's been a, a huge uptick in local violence. And that's been fueled by mining companies that have expanded their operations, leading to frustration from the local community and like actual violent clashes between those who work for the mining companies and others in the community. And to see that unfold as a result of our attempts to continue our consumption patterns while also, you know, trying to confront the climate crisis is, I think, just another example of the deeper crisis, the impacts on peace around the world, and our need for a greater conversion on this huge area of crisis. So I agree. Again, there uh, we're talking about how everything is connected to everything else, the interconnectedness of, of, of so many things. So, yeah, let's talk about COP26. You were there with a number of other young people from around the world. What uh, struck you about this event, about your time there? Any particular memories that stand out, experiences that uh, you remember, things that give you hope for our common home? Well, there's so many. It was a jam-packed two weeks in Glasgow with so much happening at any given moment. I think reflecting on it, what stands out as a surprise to me was that amidst all of the emotions, I mean, there was so much excitement going into COP, thinking that it would be really a foundational 
COP that would really change the trajectory of, of climate around the world. Coming out of it, I think my primary emotional experience and from conversations with others while I was there and after returning back have kind of affirmed this emotion as well was actually grief and the realization of the things that we are you know, not only at risk of losing, but that we're going to lose. Hearing, for example, in the high-level negotiations, hearing representatives from the small island states literally asking for anything more for the sake of their nation that's at risk of being entirely submerged by sea level rise. There was no response to that except grief, I think. And in the concluding session, Alok Sharma, who is the COP president, actually became emotional and teared up, apologizing for the, the way that the negotiations had ended. And I think for just, you know, he didn't say this explicitly, but the way in which they fell short of what we need to have a world that is remotely similar to the world we live in now and the lives that will continue to be endangered, the homes that will continue to be lost because our commitments just aren't aren't as strong as so many had hoped. And honestly, what, what we really need for the survival of many people. And so to see that kind of window of emotion crack through these very high level negotiations that are often, you know, emotionless and very diplomatic and technical in their language and whatnot, I think was really just a reflection of what so many people were feeling at COP, which was that, you know, we're going to lose a lot in the coming years and there's a lot to grieve. That also sets a very tall task for the peace builders, for the community organizers, for the leadership of nations as well to figure out, first of all, how we're going to mitigate the crisis and tone it down and and find hope for livable futures, but also how we're going to find opportunities for deep resilience when large groups of people need to be relocated or entire communities reimagined, cultures preserved in the midst of unimaginable challenges. And those are our tall tasks and things that we need. We need everyone to become a peace builder and to start thinking about these issues, regardless of whether that's their job description or if they're part of a community, everyone can think about ways to address this crisis. So I guess that that was something that surprised me because there was so much energy and hope going into it and a deeper hope going out, having connected with people who are doing incredible work from around the world with thousands of people of faith who marched in the climate march, which is a group you you don't typically hear about being such a prominent face of the climate movement, of connecting with young people who have just incredible visions for the future. Like those are all sources of hope, but together we grieve and we work to address the real challenges that are ahead that we can't just gloss over and we need to think deeply about. So uh, briefly then, where to from here? For you personally? for us, for uh, for anybody, for the world? Where do we go from here? 
Well, I guess building on on our conversation, there's always this debate in the climate movement of, okay, what's the balance between personal responsibility and corporate responsibility and government responsibility? And should we be adjusting our lifestyles or should we be changing our policies or should we be, you know, toppling the corporations? (laughs) It's always framed as an either or. But I think we need an interrogation and real change to our our structures and our policies of society. But it seems to ring hollow if it doesn't start with our hearts and with our, our mindsets and our relationships and our ways of inhabiting our physical places and our communities. And so I think where to from here really has to start with us and with the way that we navigate the world and relate to it. And that gives me hope because it's something that can change even when the governments don't make the decisions that we want them to, or the corporations are still, you know, advertising and and trying to encourage, you know, needless consumption it's still something that we can change and perceive and create in community and in relationship with each other. And so all of the above, and yet I would start with us and with our circles of people that we connect with. I guess to wrap up, we can also talk about some of the exciting things that lie ahead in terms of a a different kind of way to answer the question, what lies ahead or what's in the future where to next. I'm sure there's lots pending in terms of international travel these days, but I know that somewhere off in the future, you're planning to take a group of students back to Bethany Land Institute for the study abroad program this time. What are you kind of hoping to do through that program and and how are students going to have the opportunity to connect and, and build those relationships and connections to place through that program? Yeah, uh, thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm teaching this course on peace, ecology, and integral human development in Uganda in May 2022. And a great part of the time will be spent at Bethany Land Institute. But, but overall, if I talk about the Bethany Land Institute of Peace, overall, I would like the course to realize four things. One, invite students to explore and learn more, kind of in an introductory way, on the history and the politics of the African continent broadly uh, using the case of Uganda. So it's an introduction to African politics, African culture, African history. And two, I want it to be a learning experience about integral human development, being involved in a very concrete experiment of that at BLI. Three, I want this to be an experience of community engagement around the issues of peace, around the issues of the environment, around the issues of development. So as we work with the communities. And four, I would like this also to be an experience for the students where they come to enjoy some of the best gifts from Africa, African culture, African cuisine, African wildlife, African nature. So I want to kind of really combine all that in this course. But in terms of the time at BLI, Bethany Land Institute, what I would like the student to take away is that these kind of engagements, whether for peace, ecology, and 
the two of them, of course, are deeply uh, connected, as you just said, that these kind of engagements take place in a place. Places matter. And that's where we learn to think and to use the words of Wendell Berry, to think little. That means to think in very, very concrete ways. But in doing so, actually to deepen our engagement, our affection, but also our invitation to get onto the journey of really being invited to care for our common home. So that's what the class wants to accomplish. And I look forward to that experience as one concrete way again of really getting engaged into the invitation for all of us to work together to care for our common home. So on that, I think I would like to uh, conclude to thank you, Elsa, and uh, for the many ways in which you have been engaged in this work and uh, representing all of us here at the Croc Institute quite well. We're so proud of your time here. We are even more proud of what now you are accomplishing and doing uh, in the community around the world around these issues of environmental peace building. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your leadership. Yeah. Once again, it's been Elsa Baron, myself, Emmanuel Katongole, in this conversation. We're grateful to you all for listening in. Thank you so much. And good to talk to you always, Father Emmanuel. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.